Father, we are deeply blessed to be able to be together in such a manner this morning, to acknowledge your presence, to recognize our deep dependence upon you every moment, every hour of the day, to recognize, Lord, that you are the God who has reached down to us, that you have brought us up out of the miry clay. And yet, Father, we still dwell in the bodies that are subject to temptations and to sin, and we need your Spirit to guide us, to strengthen us, and to teach us our momentary dependence upon you each moment of the day. Father, we're so grateful for your mercy, for your love for us, and we reach out to you with thanksgiving. And we ask that the word will be living and powerful to us today. And Father, we'll be people who live in the state of grace, sharing that grace with one another, being merciful to one another and kind, and exhibiting the love that Christ exhibited as he walked here amongst us. We ask you to teach us today from your word, and we will submit to the voice of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read, <clears throat> beginning on page, uh, that is chapter 28, page 37 in my Bible, but <laughs> quite often that doesn't coincide. Page, chapter 28, verse 18 of Genesis. Genesis 28, 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a tenth to thee. Jacob has been, of course, the subject of a great deal of study down through the past 2,000 years and more, of course, but in the church, and the object of uh, many, many sermons. We have just talked about the famous dream that he had of the ladder and of the angels moving up and down the ladder and God standing at the top of the ladder. And this was, of course, a, an expression of many things, but one of the most important truths that we derive from this is that there is contact between heaven and earth. The God who is transcendent is also imminent. He reaches down to us, and that, of course, is the whole theme behind salvation and what makes it so different from the, quote, salvation one might find in the religions of the world, where it's always an effort to try to reach up to God rather than simply receiving the God who is reaching down. And we discover that this man Jacob is now taking this stone, which he had for a pillow. To me, that's an oxymoron, but nevertheless, that's what it says here. And he turned the thing upward, 
and he poured oil on it, and he consecrated it to God. He was thereby consecrating himself, because this had been the stone upon which he rested when he saw this vision, when he dreamed this dream. A memorial to the revelation that God dwells among men. And that's why he called that place Bethel, the house of God. He knew that God did not dwell in that little stone, or that God was not isolated to that hilltop. But that was the point, the touchstone, if, if we might call it that. The point at which God touched his life and revealed to him something of the reality of who God really is. And so he erects that pillar. Now, it wasn't very large and probably uh, eventually was lost in terms of being able to be recognized as the stone because the land, as I've mentioned before, if you've been there, is covered with stones. And to find one small stone amongst millions would not be particularly easy to do. But that isn't really the point. The point is that spot was named Bethel, House of God, and even though, as I mentioned last time, the people who lived in the nearby city of Almond Tree, which is what Luz meant, didn't know that the name of their town had been changed. But as we read in the passage in the book of Judges, when they conquered the land, it became known as Bethel from that moment on, and the people who were driven out, at least the man who, who helped them get into the city and was thereby freed, went off somewhere else, into the land of the Hittites, we're told, and set up a new city, which he called Luz, because the city's name was changed forever, and today it is still known as Bethel. It's not much of a village. You go over there today, and you see the little village of Bethel sitting on the hilltop. It's, it's not particularly uh, breathtaking in any way, but nevertheless, it is still called Bethel. Jacob wanted to respond to God in some way. So he chooses to respond to God by giving to him a tenth as a tithe, or promising that he will. He probably remembered this amount as the amount that Abraham had dedicated to Melchizedek many years before, and he had heard the story many times, probably even from the mouth of Abraham when Jacob was a young man. And so he chose this particular amount. Now, it was not required of him. God did not say, thou shalt give me a tenth as a tithe, but he is making it as a free will offering to God, as a response. He wanted to do something in response to the God who had revealed himself to him at that spot in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, the question that we might ask here, and I've never heard anybody ask this question or preach about it, there was no church. There was no tabernacle, there was no temple, and there was no Melchizedek in Paden Aram. So to whom did he give the tenth? What did he do with the tenth? Well, the scripture doesn't say, but I think that we can assume that the tenth was dedicated to the needy. Because that is a principle of Scripture, Old and New Testament. In fact, we'll be reading a passage a little bit later in the New Testament where that is specifically said to be one of the places to which the monies we give to the Lord is to be dispersed, is to the needy. And so we can assume probably that that's what he did with the tenth that he dedicated to God. Half a millennium later, 
that 10% tithe would be built into the law. And that's why I put there on your outline the passage at the end of the book of Leviticus. If we could turn to Leviticus chapter 27, the last chapter in Leviticus. This is not the only statement, but it's one of the statements relative to the tithe. In verse 30, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And then verse 32, And for every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So this, this principle was built into the law and was applied to all of the people of God who were descended from this man, Jacob. Today, you and I are not under the Levitical laws, but neither were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob under the Levitical laws. They gave purely out of what? Out of love for God, out of response to God, and so should we today. Now, it's, I, I suppose it can go without saying amongst uh, a group such as this that we know that giving in no way affects our salvation. I hope we know that. We're mostly familiar, I think, uh, with the Ephesians chapter 2, which tells us very, very emphatically that salvation comes by faith alone and not by any kind of work which we can do which is very strange that there are many different groups who call themselves Christians who seem to deny that by their actions. It seems that their works are the means by which they're trying to achieve their salvation, but Paul makes it very clear that no work will bring to us salvation. But conversely, our good works are an expression of the reality of our faith of the reality of our salvation. And that's where James makes the point so clear. Luther called the book of James that right strawy epistle. And Luther may not have uh, fully understood the book of James, although I think he understood it better than it might seem to come across in some of his writings. But uh, the book of James makes it very, very clear as he says in the second chapter, faith without works is useless. Your works, my works, do not bring faith. But if my faith doesn't bring works, then that faith is useless. And I think what he is saying there is that it is non-existent. It's not a genuine, life-changing faith. And referring back to Abraham, particularly to his uh, sacrifice or willingness to sacrifice Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah, uh, James says, faith was working in his works, that is in Abraham's works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, that is, completed or proven. His faith was made genuine or demonstrated to be genuine because of what he was willing to do on that lonely mountaintop 4,000 years ago. So as Abraham responded in the Melchizedek incident, out of love and giving, so Jacob now responds. And this, of course, I believe, is the way we are to respond. We respond not because we feel we must. We respond because of what, who we have come to know God to be. 
and to under, in our understanding of what he has done for us. Not to create worthiness, nor to, uh, to appease him. This, of course, is what the uh, pagans are doing all the time. They're trying to appease their gods. Some of you have certainly read uh, Lords of the Earth, uh, written by Don Richardson, in which he talks about some of the primitive tribes in uh, New Guinea and how they attempt to appease the gods and the spirits that they worship, even to the point of human sacrifice. And one of the most dramatic scenes in that book, and one that I, you know, I can't get it out of my mind simply because you know, I raised, uh, my wife and I raised four little girls and who have, of course, become adults. But in that story, one of the uh, sacrifices was of a three-year-old child, which they took out to a river in, in, in the, at the uh, moment that they were supposed to make this sacrifice to appease the gods, and they flung her out into this raging river. She didn't have any idea what was coming on. She was just getting a piggyback ride out uh, to a river, and suddenly they flung her into the... And of course, she couldn't swim. And, and you think, this is how the pagans try to appease the spirits and the gods. And there should be no concept and no attitude of appeasement in our worship of God, because he is not there to be appeased, and there's nothing we could do to appease him anyway. Appease is not a part of the theology of the worship of the true and the living God. So Jacob is making this sacrifice out of love, not because he is trying to appease the God that he saw at the top of the ladder. And the God that he knew was the God of his grandfather Abraham and of his father Isaac, Elohim, Yahweh. Now, Today, hopefully, we see the 10% tithe as a guideline and that we don't feel constricted and bound by it as if we were living in the days of the book of Leviticus. There is no set percentage given in the New Testament, and this is, of course, often mentioned. If there was, if, God, if Jesus were to have said, I, I expect 10% from you all, that would fuel a legalism that he spoke out against so strongly. You know, the legalism of the Pharisees. And of course, it would allow us to get off cheaply, really, when you think about that. Oh, I can just set aside 10%, give it to God, and, I, and I'm done. I don't have to worry about God anymore. I've, I've taken care of God's needs, you know. As we go along, we'll see, as I'm sure we're mostly aware of already, that uh, God doesn't just demand, demand, demand <laughs> or desire 10%, he wants 100% of all that we have and all that we are. Jesus responded very strongly to this legalistic concept in many places, and one, one verse I thought would, was quite uh, apropos here is in Matthew 23, verse 23, where Jesus, of course, is again encountering the Pharisees, as he so often did, and he's... Um, speaking the woes. And in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, that is, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. 
Now, to us, it's, you know, it, it it's really becomes nitpicking if you're talking about somebody who goes out there and picks every tenth little leaf and every tenth little pot of seeds and sets that aside as unto the Lord. And, and that's what he's talking about here, this, this straining at the gnat, if you will, of the law, and, and yet missing the great uh, purposes of the law and the theme of the law that... Uh, was clearly given. The message here is, is quite clear. Justice and mercy and faithfulness are attitudes of the heart. This is what should be in our heart, day by day, justice, mercy, faithfulness. I mean, and think about those things. Justice, we think of as being at the opposite pole from mercy. But really, in God, they're tied together. In God, you have justice and mercy all built into one theme that comes down through Scripture. And God's justice was fulfilled in His mercy of sending His Son to die in our place. And then our faithfulness to living as God has called us to as a result of His justice and His mercy. And we in turn then should reflect that justice, that mercy, that faithfulness as we walk day by day. They are supreme important, supremely important. To abide by the letter of the law, but to fail to let the rule of the love of God reign in our hearts is to be a hypocrite of the worst kind. And you'll notice there, probably in your translation as it is in mine in verse 23, the word hypocrites has an exclamation point after it. <laughs> now, you know, can you imagine us walking into the Reading ministerial counsel here and waving our finger at them and calling them hypocrites. Huh. Probably wouldn't be terribly appreciated. And, uh, but it would be true because every one of us stand or sit here today with a measure of hypocrisy in our lives. Hopefully as we walk day by day with the Lord, that is trimmed away and we become more and more fashioned in the image of Christ. But nevertheless, we have to recognize that in us there is a measure of hypocrisy. But in the case of the Pharisees and the scribes, as, as uh, Christ is speaking to them here, they weren't even hiding it, at least not from him. And it was so blatant that he underscored it as he referred to them as hypocrites. Now Jesus was not saying to them, you shouldn't tithe. They were to do both. You were to give out of the heart what was required, but at the same time, share what the law is really about, mercy and justice and faithfulness. <clears throat> now, Paul, building on that, later on, of course, teaches us a principle which I think is extremely important for us to understand today in the church, and that is the principle of proportionate giving. If we turn to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul alludes to this briefly in this particular passage. 1 Corinthians 16.1 Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed in the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. The point that Paul is, is explaining here in part 
is that we give according to the measure with which God has blessed us. The more we prosper, the more we give. Well, some would say, well, if I give 10%, I automatically give more if I prosper more, don't I? Well, in terms of absolute numbers, yes, but not in terms of proportion. I think of this as being a kind of a sliding scale where Paul is saying the more you prosper, the larger is the percentage that you will give, which will, of course, greatly magnify then the total amount that is given. And, of course, this always brings to mind, as we've uh, talked about a little bit before, R.G. Letourneau, the great manufacturer of earth-moving equipment, who, as God prospered him, arrived at the point that he was giving God 90% of his income and keeping the 10%. Now, most of us would say, uh, well, if we were to do that, we'd be, in, uh, we'd be on beans in a tent someplace, if we could afford a tent. But, of course, the point is, as God prospers, God is not asking us to, to necessarily, he may have asked some, and I've read the account, as you have, of some individuals, uh, I can't remember the man's name now, but uh, one individual who wanted to go to the mission field, but had a physical defect that didn't allow him to go, so he dedicated his life to support as many missionaries as possible. So he lived in a, almost a, bare, a very small, bare apartment with orange crates for his furniture, and he gave like 80 or 90 percent of his income uh, to support missionaries, and he lived just uh, as modestly as he possibly could live and, and stay healthy and able to work. That's, that's one extreme. Uh, the other is, of course, that uh, God wants us to be able to provide. The scripture teaches us we are to provide for our family. If we don't, we're worse than an infidel, the scripture teaches. So we need to provide and provide adequately, but as God blesses beyond the basics, then the principle that Paul seems to be teaching here is that we give a larger proportion of what he has blessed us with. Scripture also teaches us in this passage that we should give regularly, not just once in a while when we feel like it. Oh, I haven't given for six months. I better put something in the pot, you know. No, it's a regular thing that we build in, that we, we give on a, on a given cycle. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, it says here that the gifts are to be used for the needs of the saints. Now, we know from Scripture from many passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that God does not need our money. Right? What did he do for Israel? As they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, what did God do? He supplied their every need. Did he have some passing tribe come by and leave them a large catch of food? Did he uh, have uh, some distant relatives ship in something from somewhere? No, as they wandered in the wilderness, God, out of the clear blue sky, met their needs. Literally, out of the clear blue sky, there was the manna. Day by day, year by year. Their clothes didn't wear out. You know, it, God simply uh, negated the principle of attrition in the case of the Israelites for that 40 years of wandering, relative to their clothing, at least. God can do that. God supplied for, uh, Elijah with, with birds. I've always thought about that and just wondered, you know, in our day, we probably wouldn't want to eat something that a bird had brought in its mouth, you know, especially a wild bird. But Elijah wasn't so picky. 
He didn't know about germs, and I guess that was a blessing in, in his days. Of course, God would send a, a nice, clean bird anyway. But uh, why is it that God has chosen differently? He doesn't need our money. So why has God put this principle in? Well, I think there are at least three reasons, and certainly you can think of others. But I think, first of all, it has to do with God wanting us to feel that we are needed in the body of Christ. And if we're able to contribute something, it doesn't always have to be money, of course. It can be other things. But money should be one thing, that we are helping to build the kingdom in, in some small way. Secondly, it helps us, I think, to sense the unity and the reality of the body of Christ. There is more than one passage in Scripture that teaches us that we are to contribute to the needs of the body of Christ, that we are to reach out to the saints first, that it's our obligation to do that, uh, that really we, have, uh, we, we do not display true Christian compassion if we know that, that believers are suffering and unable to, to meet even the basic needs of their lives, and we do nothing about it. And then thirdly, I, I think it helps us to learn the value and the joy of giving and to discover the true meaning of love. Because we so often remember and quote that, that verse in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave what? The greatest gift that has ever been given in the history of the universe. The greatest gift that could possibly be given. And that demonstrated an unselfishness, of course, that was perfect as compared to our attitude so often about giving. Now, one of the passages that came to mind was one that our pastor preached on a while back, but I thought it would be good to look at the passage again, and that is in the seventh chapter of the book of Luke, that really touching, hopefully touching, account of Jesus in the uh, house of the Pharisee. Now, I don't know which translation you have, but if you have one of the modern translations, it renders the, it correctly here. Let me read verse 36 first. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, hopefully all of us have now the, the picture in mind that is correct. We used to not be told these things, partly, I suppose, because most expositors didn't really know themselves. But uh, we often see, for example, the picture of the Lord's Supper, I suppose largely because that's the way da Vinci painted it, uh, as everybody lined up behind a table, sitting on benches as if they were at a picnic, you know, and, and, and being served. But really, uh, in, in the world of that day, they reclined at the table. And uh, usually they ate at what uh, were known in the Latin world as triclinia. And you had a, a table, uh, usually an oval table or maybe a rectangular table here, and on three sides of it you had beds, literally beds that inclined toward the table and tapered off lower away from the table. And you laid down on this particular thing. And uh, you rested with your head facing the table and usually, you know, one hand like this and you ate off the table like this. 
and your feet went, of course, away from the table. This was very characteristic of the Greek and the Roman world, and it seems because of the way the Greek is written here that that's what's being implied as to how they did it in the land of, uh, of Judah at this particular time because of the influence of the Greco-Roman world, at least in part. And, of course, that may, helps us to understand how it could be that John, we're told in a, in a passage, was resting against Jesus' breast. Otherwise, we say, what is the matter with this guy? Couldn't keep his head up, you know, it was kind of clunked over here, you know. <laughs> but, you know, they would be resting uh, front to back, you know, and so it would be easy for him just to lean back to Jesus and speak to him over his shoulder, or, you know, he could turn the other way, but be leaning against Jesus. And it just fits in really well here. And the scripture tells us they were reclining at table. Verse 37, behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. <laughs> That's really a funny statement when I think about that, you know. I mean, here's the whole city full of sinners. But, of course, the point was that she was viewed by the Pharisees as being sinner with a capital S, you know. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet. Now notice how she could do that. If he were sitting at the table, she'd have to crawl under the table to try to do this thing. But with his feet out here, she could stand at the back of the table and his feet were right there handy. And so she could do what we uh, see her doing here. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of a person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, <coughs> he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my, head, my, my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, Who's this man who even forgives sin? Notice, man. This is the, uh, what's implied anyway. <coughs> and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, we have in, in this passage a, a profound demonstration of what it is to love and to give a great gift because of that particular love. John tells us later, referring back probably to this incident, that the perfume that she put on Jesus' feet was worth 300 denarii. Well, in those days, the denarii was considered to be the typical wage of a laborer for one day. 
So we're talking about approximately a year's wages. Now most of us no, translate that into your income. Now our incomes vary a lot here. But just think of a whole annual income being poured into one little vial of perfume and then putting that on somebody's feet. Would that not seem like an incredible idea? And, and so Judas thought, what a waste. It had been sold and put into the money bag so that we could give it to the poor. Huh. So that he could filch it, really, is what he was interested in. But this woman's love for Jesus was so great that no gift was too great for her to give to him. And to her, I don't think she even thought twice. I mean, we could ask, where in the world did she get this to start with? Well, whatever the, however she got it, it was a great gift for her to give. And notice the Pharisee had already demonstrated his attitude towards Jesus by not even offering Jesus water to wash his feet, which was a very common practice in those days and was done as a typical means of hospitality, of expressing hospitality. And the kiss and all the rest of it, this, this was supposed to have been done, but it hadn't been done for Jesus, which demonstrated that the Pharisee did not consider him really worthy to be in his home, but he invited him anyway because he wanted to question Jesus and look at him closely. Now what the scripture teaches us, and, and we're all, I think, quite well familiar with Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, is God is not interested in simply receiving the greatest possible gift we could give in terms of money. Does God need our money? Hardly. Just think of it. We don't even know what's deep down inside the earth. I mean, geologists guess at what's down there. But, but God may have put all kinds of precious metals deeper into the earth than they are right now. In fact, it's been estimated that the gold miners who have taken gold out of Sierra Nevada, the mother load and so forth, have only taken 15% of what's there. The easy 15%. During World War II, the Nazis uh, developed a method of, uh, of electrolysis where they were extracting gold out of seawater. Just running seawater into this apparatus and extracting gold. But they found out it cost more to extract it than the gold was worth. So they, they gave up after a while. I think the figure was that it took the amount of water that would fill two Empire State buildings to get out a single ounce of gold. So you can imagine that's a lot of water to process, a pretty expensive deal. But, you know, all that stuff. I mean, God has all the wealth of the universe, so does he need our pittance. Well, he doesn't need it. What God desires most of all from us is, as we're told here in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that is, discern what the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, that is complete or mature. God doesn't want our 10%. He wants, us, he wants all of us. All that we have, we, we sing that little chorus, don't we? Everything that I am and everything that I'm not and, 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 and so forth. God wants the entirety of who we are and what we possess, not just our piddling little 10% or whatever it is. Not that we shouldn't give the 10% or even more. 
but our attitude should be, I'm yours, Lord. Everything that I have is yours. And if that's our attitude, then God is pleased with us. And we can't buy that pleasure with our 10% if we don't have in our hearts that attitude that all that we are is His. If this attitude is there, then the natural response is found in terms of material giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which is so often the passage preached on when a pastor wants to stir the congregation up because the general fund is lagging. By the way, a preacher should never have to do that. Not that a preacher shouldn't preach on stewardship. This is part of what should be taught. But he shouldn't have to do a crisis sermon to get people going. We were at a church once, and we were, we were part of it for several years, where they made a, a bold move. The leadership decided, rather than passing the offering plate, they would simply put a box in the back of the auditorium and you placed your giving in that box. It was up to you to remember and to do it, rather than sending a plate around so that visitors would feel, oh, goodness, I better, they're looking at me. I better put something in the pot, you know. Not that it's not good for visitors to give, but there it was, and, and nobody was preaching. Don't forget to put something in the box this morning, you know. It was just there, and income did not fall one dollar as a result of that change. And it put more burden on the people to remember that they're giving to the Lord and it's their responsibility not to have to be jogged every time you see the little basket coming around. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Notice Paul lays the foundation. This is the biblical principle. This is the principle God has established in the universe. It all stems from this. If you give little, you receive little. If you give much, you receive much. Not that you're buying it by your giving. It's an attitude of the heart. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, we're to decide in our own minds before God what we should do. And then stick with it until God pushes us and nudges us to do something differently. Not to be pushed around by every whim that comes along, you know, but to do what we have purpose to do so that we can do so, not grudgingly, but cheerfully. You don't have to say, oh, I've got to put another check in because he's preaching at me or because they're looking at me or because John Doe did so. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Notice, for what? Abundance so that we can blow it upon our, upon our lusts? An abundance so that we can keep up with the Joneses? An abundance so that we can get ahead of the Joneses? No. What is the abundance for? Every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice how the giving of ourselves and, and what we possess is tied together with righteousness. It's an expression of it. 
J. Vernon McGee, always in his very blunt way, would say that how you express your faith with your pocketbook is probably the best measure of your true faith. A stingy person probably has a stingy faith, if one at all. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Notice how Paul ties all those things together. Now, if we try to isolate giving and just make it a facet or, or just make it some kind of a extraneous, or not extraneous, but ex exterior thing, it just doesn't work. It's intricately tied together with our righteousness, with the ministry, with the proof of our faith. All of these things are tied together. I have heard that uh, there have been people in, in leadership of various churches and even in this church, and you know, I don't go beyond that, who said, and I don't mean in the pastoral staff or on the board, but in other places, who have said, I don't even believe in tithing. Well, what do they mean by that? In giving a specific set amount or in giving it all? Well, the implication was, from those who heard this, was you didn't believe it was necessary to give it all. Well, you know, if that's so, then somebody has, is very illiterate in, in what the Scripture teaches relative to this. Paul brings it all together, though, in that last verse. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I mean, we're talking about giving something to the Lord, giving ourselves, giving what we possess, but what does it how does it compare to the gift that God has given to us? Like it has been said, can we outgive God? No, not in any way, because he has already given us the greatest possible gift that could be given. So anything we give is never going to be too much. This passage does not teach, however, as some television evangelists I have heard or radio evangelists have said, that if we give to God a certain amount, he is obliged to give to us a bigger amount. Not that he just will because he feels like it, but he's obliged to. This is the implication that comes across. And these ministries want you to send 10, 20, 1,000, whatever. And, and the idea is that God will then multiply it and give you 10 times as much or some other such uh, thing. But that's the attitude there is, I'm going to purchase God's blessing. I'm going to buy God's blessing. And we might say that that's what Jacob was doing. And some commentators have read that in there, as I mentioned you last time. Spurgeon implies that there was a little bit of a business deal here going on in Jacob's mind. He was, in effect, saying, I'll give you this, God, if you'll promise to give me food, give me clothing, and bring me back to my father's house safely. Then you'll be my God, and I'll give you 10%. Well, there may have been some of that in there, but I, I think it was more of a, of a response of a heart that's been touched by God here. And we have to recognize Jacob was immature in his faith. I mean, we saw that from the events that had transpired earlier in his life. He was pretty immature in his faith. His faith is now beginning to grow with his, with his 
personal contact with, this is, that was the first time that he had personally met God face to face alone. And besides that, did he possess this? No, he didn't have this. We have it. We have no excuse. We can't say, well, God, I didn't know. I didn't, you haven't faced me face to face. Oh, yes, he has. <laughs> if we read this, it's right there. It's made so clear. So we don't have the excuse that Jacob had. God's not primarily concerned with the amount of a gift that we might give because, as I've already noted, God possesses the whole universe and is in need of nothing, but he's concerned about the attitude of our hearts. Are we stingy? Do we give simply because we feel we gotta, because we call ourselves a Christian? Or do we give because we really are responding to the love that God has demonstrated towards us? If we give to salve our conscience, or to put him in our debt, we miss the whole point. And there was an individual in Scripture, more than one, but one particular one, I thought, uh, because he's become famous as a result, or infamous, if you will, is a good example of one who tried to uh, use money in the wrong way relative to God. And this is in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, beginning at verse 14. Acts 14, 24. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that, now this is not Simon Peter, but this is Simon the former mus ma magician, <laughs> musician, magician, uh, saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now from this comes the concept of simony. Certainly you've heard about it in, in various contexts. It usually shows up mostly in the context of the history of the church. And one of the big problems, one of the things that uh, that, the, that the Reformation reached, uh, struck out against was the concept of, uh, of simony. And there were attempts at various points in the history of the church to uh, get the church back on the right track by eliminating simony, amongst other things. And simony was, of course, primarily defined in the church as the buying and selling of church offices. I mean, even the position of pope from time to time was obtained through purchase, through money, through bribery. And uh, archbishop of this and, and bishop of that uh, many men who had absolutely no spiritual qualifications, had had never been in the church before as anything except uh, a parishioner, ended up as bishop and archbishop simply because they outbid others to be able to obtain the office. Why would they want the office, you might say? Well, because they didn't view the office as a spiritual ministry. They viewed it as a source of income and power. So the buying and selling of church offices is called simony, referring back to this man here who attempted to buy the ability to 
to impart the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. And, 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 and Peter makes it quite clear, your heart is wrong if you feel by giving money you can obtain anything from God. And sometimes our hearts are not that far from that concept. And we need to be careful to analyze, to be sure that we're giving liberally out of a heart of love and obedience, not because we feel obligated and thus we believe we're putting God in obligation to us. Many feel that the blessing of God is measured in dollars and cents. If I give, God will bless me. And they measure that in dollars and cents. But that's when the scripture says that God blesses those who liberally give of themselves, that blessing is not defined by God in dollars and cents. And uh, Paul, in his counsel to Timothy, points that out uh, in one instance in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue what? What are the real blessings of God? righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This is what makes us honorable in the sight of God, not how much we give and thus expect God to pour into our bank account so that we can spend it on our own desires. Most of us probably do not have a blatant attitude like that, but sometimes it can creep in in a small way. We have to learn to shake off materialism, which is hard to do in our society because everywhere you turn around, it's kind of wham, wham. You know, we're hit, hit from every side. You've got to have this, you've got to have that. Life is not worth living if you don't have this, that, and the other thing. You know, you've got to smell a certain way and dress a certain way and drink a certain thing and eat a certain thing and go to a certain place. If you don't, life is you know, really rotten and, and not worth living. But that's not what Scripture tells us. We have to learn to be content. He says, if you have food, enough to eat, and clothes to wear, what else do you really need? Well, we would throw in... A, you know, a house to live in and a car, you know, probably. But uh, the point is, that's what he's saying. We don't need all those other things. Finally, let me just uh, bring it to an end here. We need to stop with Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid, for what shall man do to me? Money is not the big thing. We've heard it said, if money's not the only thing, it's sure way ahead of whatever's number two, you know. Well, that's simply not the biblical teaching. God this way ahead of everything, and righteousness and justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's what life's about. And that needs to be the goal of our living. Next week, we're going to begin chapter 29 as Jacob arrives in Haran. And we had that really interesting encounter there. Another encounter at the well. There's several encounters at the well uh, that go through scripture. Today, we would call it what? An encounter at the drinking fountain? I don't know. But anyway, encounter at the well. And uh, where he first lays eyes on this 
Miss Heron, or Miss Paid Madam, or whatever, I mean, this lovely lady that will become his bride. 